Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the executive pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit MySouthland.com. I'm going to keep going now on a series I started two weeks ago. And last week, uh, Tom had a one-off in their amazing message on adoption, the fact that we're adopted into God's family, and then about adoption and fostering, and wonderful message about the gospel and how we're to take care of orphans and, and widows. Um, but two weeks before that, I had started a series on money, and I'm going to continue on that uh, today. The Bible has a lot to say about money, and in this whole series, I want us to get a godly perspective of wealth and money. And so the Bible talks more about money almost than anything else. There's more than uh, 2,000 verses in the Bible about money and possessions. If, even if you want to just stick to the Gospels, uh, Jesus tells 38 different parables in the Gospels, 16 of them, that's 42% for those of you who care, who are uh, little math whizzes, but uh, 42% of Jesus' parables have to do with with money and possessions. So if, if we're going to be faithful to the Word of God, if we're going to be faithful, and that's what we're into here at Southland, is we want to teach through this book all the time. And so that's why last year I preached a whole series, moved through the whole book of Romans, and we taught, you know, worked our way through a bunch of Psalms in summer. Uh, Genesis to Revelation, we want to preach the whole counsel of God. That's what we're passionate about. And if you want to preach the whole counsel of God in the Bible, at some point you've got to talk about money because it's a huge issue in here. And money is not separate from our spirituality. Uh, what we do with our money and with our wealth and how we think of it says a lot about our relationship with God. And so today we're going to carry on with this series on money. And today I'm going to talk about work. Um, because for most of us, work is the source of what money we have or don't have, right? And uh, of course, I know the moment I say work, some of you are like, you know, I just spent all week at work and I came here to get away from work. Um, but I do think this message is going to be an encouragement to you and to see, because the Bible has a lot to say about this topic and how it's tied together with money. And so let's pray, and then we'll get into this. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we love you. We really love you. Thank you. Uh, I just think of our retreat and training center and an amazing retreat we were able to run over there uh, this weekend already, and the many pastors and stuff are going to be trained over there, and the much ministry that's going to be done there. Uh, we just thank you for that blessing. We thank you for this church family. Really, I'm lucky to get to be a part of this church family. And we just bless your name, Lord Jesus. We are so blessed to get to follow you, that you gave your life for us. And today we want to talk about work, and you talk a lot about work. Would you encourage us in your word this morning? Would you bless us, and would you change us as a church and as individuals? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So i got to start by saying that work is good. I know in our culture... That's not necessarily a given, and for many Christians as well, like I said, there's a mentality for many of us that work is something to be escaped. So for many people, including Christians, the whole week is a matter of getting through the week to get to the weekend. And for many people, including Christians, you know, it's all about retirement. I've got to work as much as I can, uh, save money so I can retire as soon as I can. In much of our culture, including in Christian culture, it's all about escaping work. It's almost like work is a, is, is a bad thing. It's a hard thing. It's a taxing thing. Um, so I want to start by looking at it in the, in the Scripture. And the Scripture has a very different attitude towards work. Everywhere we look in Scripture, uh, the Bible talks about work in a very positive light, that actually work is a very good thing. And it all starts with God. The fact of the matter is God himself is a worker. He works. And so if we start in Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, we find this, And on the seventh day God finished his work. And of course, it's not that he's been just resting since then. He's done a lot of work since then, but this just shows that he worked even in creation. But he finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done, okay? So this is actually a really profound truth. And so often, there's, there's so many profound truths in Scripture that we just glaze over. But if we just stop and think about this for a moment, the fact that God works... Okay? that he is a worker. This actually is an outflow of his character and who he is. Okay? Work is not something that was supposed to be a punishment. A lot of people think of work as part of the curse, that because God was mad because of sin and Adam and Eve, that's why we have to work. But actually, God is a worker. Okay? He loves to work. He loves to create. He loves to make things. Okay? And, uh, and this means that work is not a bad thing. And actually, we'll find just a few verses later in the same chapter, before there was sin, the moment he made Adam, he had Adam working. So sin is not part of the, or sin is not part of the curse. <laughs> uh, yes, sin caused the curse. Work is not part of the curse. 
the moment God made Adam, before there was any sin, creation was still all good. And while creation was still all good and before there was sin, God put Adam to work immediately. Look at this, Genesis 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it, okay? So before there was a chance to sin, Adam was already working, okay? He wasn't, God didn't just create man and then say, now until you sin, just relax. Because actually, the ultimate human, human reality is to just sit around and enjoy entertainment. That's not what God sees as the pinnacle of human experience to be relaxing, okay? There's obviously a place for rest, absolutely, and entertainment and relaxation, but actually the pinnacle of human experience is not the resting, that, but actually there's an important component of human existence, which is actually just the working. And so he had to work the garden and keep it. Uh, another job he had, if we just skip ahead four verses, is that he also got to name the animals, right? So Genesis 2 verse 19, now out of the out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to, see the man, to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And again, this is profound. I mean, God could have done it himself. God could have said, hey, Adam, I'm so happy to, to, to have made you. You go sit and relax over there. Have a, have a sip of something uh, sweet and good. And I'm going to name all the animals, right? I mean, he could have just named them. He could have done that. He doesn't do that. He makes man and then says, let's do this together. I've got a task for you. I've got a challenge for you. This is actually part of what it means to be image bearers of God. He's a worker and we work. It's part of bearing the image of God as human beings is that we work. And so the only problem actually in God's good creation when he had Adam working, the only problem was that Adam was working alone. And so actually if we look at the verse right before this one, verse 18, I'm going to put that up there right away. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him, okay? So now, now that's also very profound. The fact that God would call Eve Adam's helper. Now, the point of this passage is not to show that women are subservient to men somehow, that women are supposed to serve men. Uh, in, the, in the scriptures, we also find verses about God being our helper, and certainly God isn't our servant. So the point here, the calling woman helper does not make woman uh, lower on the hierarchy than man. All this is saying is that she's supposed to work with him. I mean, it's profound that she's called a helper. You don't need a helper to do nothing. Isn't that true? You don't need a helper to lie around in the sun on vacation in Mexico, okay? It might be nice to have some companionship, but you don't need a helper for that. You don't need a helper to do nothing. So the fact that he calls, that Eve is called Adam's helper, right from the very beginning, we see that work is integral to what it means to be a human being. So Adam was made to work. This is, work isn't a bad thing because of sin. Work was a good thing that human beings were always made to do. And Eve was created to help him, which means to work together, that we can actually have community as we... Uh, work together. Work is part of our DNA. It's part of being made in the image of God. It's part of who, who God is and part of what we were made to do. Now, the question is, if work is such a good thing, why do so many people hate it? Including Christians, right? Um, I've preached a couple of uh, series. We preach a couple of series here over the years on heaven. And inevitably, when we preach a, a series on heaven, I will talk at some point in there about the fact that, uh, that, that we are going to work in heaven. In a moment I say that, I can just see shoulders in, in the audience just go. Like, it's like I've just sucked all the hope out of them because they just spent all week hating their job, coming to church, and they're looking forward to heaven when they're not going to have to work anymore. And then I say, we're going to have to work in heaven, and a lot of people get depressed. And inevitably, I'll have people come up to me after a message like that, and it's almost like they're in a panic. I don't know if I want to go to heaven anymore, right? <laughs> like, we're going to have to work in heaven? My, you know, work, that, that's terrible, right? But absolutely, we're going to work in heaven. God is a worker. Part of being in his image is to work. We're going to, to build things, amazing things, design things, engineer things, cook and bake things, okay? Now, none of those I'm going to do. Um, I'm going to be one of the only unemployed ones in heaven, I think. I don't have any skills for heaven. And Jesus will be doing the preaching, so I don't know what's going to happen up there. But anyway, but we're going to do, we're going to write, you know? There's going to be music and plays and movies and books and all. We're, we're going to create and invent and explore and farm. We're going to work in heaven. There's not even a, a question. Now, um, of course, it's not going to be painful like it is here. 
So the question is why, if, if work is supposed to be good and we're going to work in heaven, and, and in heaven work is going to be a source of tremendous joy and satisfaction for us. I mean, in heaven, even the most menial tasks, I mean, just think of Jesus, he just looks at you and says, would you wipe up this table for me? I mean, to do anything for Jesus. You know, something I remember my brother Stefan said to me once, he said, he said I'd just like to be a spoon on Jesus' table, right? Um, it's a great way of, of looking at it. I mean, in heaven, to do even the most menial tasks for Jesus will be the most wonderful, life-giving thing. It'll be the most amazing thing, okay? So the question then is, again, why is work so painful? It was created to be good. It's going to be good. And in the meantime, why is it that we experience it often to be so draining and unenjoyable, or so many people do, and, and painful? And there's three reasons. I, I won't have time to look into all of them, but uh, um, the brokenness of this world uh, the sinful nature of, of other people, right? So one of the reasons work is so painful for so many people so often is because of the people you work with, right? So some of them are angry, some of them are miserable, some of them are dishonest. I mean, some of the, it's just, it's just, some of the, it's often just working, it's the sinful nature of the people we're around can make work miserable. Um, but of course, we just can't blame everybody else either, right? It's also our own sinful nature that we carry with us to work. That makes us ungrateful. We might have a perfectly good job, and we're just miserable because we're ungrateful, and we can't enjoy it, or we're lazy, or whatever. Our own sinful nature, the sinful nature of others, uh, these things have warped uh, our experience of work. So, that, so much so that many of us can't imagine work to be a, a life-giving thing. Okay? So work was certainly impacted by the curse. It was created to be good. We will find much life in it in the future, in eternity, but certainly it was impacted by the curse, and we see this in Genesis chapter 3 when God is pronouncing the curse. He's speaking to Adam and, and Eve and Satan, and we're going to see he actually touches on work here. Genesis chapter 3 verse 17, and to Adam, God said, this is God speaking, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So Adam was already working the ground. He was farming and stuff, obviously, to grow food and things before there was sin. But before there was sin, his work was not toil. It was rewarding. So a hard day's work before sin, Adam would pour his effort into this thing. It would bear fruit. It would be rewarding. But after sin, it became toil, right? Cursed is the ground. It became harder than it should be. Uh, it became harder than it should be. It also meant that there's not the rewards that there should be. Before sin, if you would put your effort into something, you would always get a reward for that effort. Since sin, some of that cause and effect has been broken, and sometimes we pour our efforts into things and we don't see many results. Okay? So cursed is the ground. It became painful. It became hard. Verse 18, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. So now, actually, there are things, and this is true for any line of work, not just farming. There's thorns and thistles now in this broken world in every line of work that whereas when work was created, there, there was nothing painful about work for Adam to begin with. But because of sin, now we go to work, and there's actually things at work that cause us pain. Okay? And so whereas before sin, hard work was rewarding, it was energizing, after sin, hard work often can be taxing or draining or painful because of these thorns and thistles, all right? And then verse 19, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. So you just see that since sin now, hard work is no longer a life-giving thing. It can be a life-draining thing at times for us in this broken world. For out of it you were taken, uh, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So, just to recap here, work is good, okay? Work is from God. God is a worker. We're going to work in eternity. We're going to do it, take on amazing challenges. I mean, heaven's going to be amazing. I mean, the thought that heaven is just one long time at the beach forever and ever, you can't even enjoy rest unless your rest is punctuated by work every now and then. Isn't that true? Right? So we're going to work in heaven. We're going to take on challenges. All that stuff is amazing. But in the meantime, we also recognize that because of sin and the brokenness of this world and our sinful natures, uh, certainly work has become painful and draining in many uh, ways for us. So the question then is, what should our approach to work be now in the present in this broken world as Christians? And actually, surprisingly enough, the New Testament has a lot to say about work. A lot of people wouldn't think that the New Testament would talk a lot about work, but actually the New Testament says quite a bit about work. Okay, and so I'm going to start with a, with a verse, 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 10. And in this verse, Paul says this, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. 
So I see already some of you are getting upset. So before you get too upset and throw anything at me, I just want you to remember, I haven't said anything yet. I just read to you the Bible. That's all I did. Okay? So this is the inspired Word of God. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Now, let's just take a little time out. Very important word there on the second line, willing. Okay? Very important line, if anyone is not willing to work. Obviously, there are many people for many reasons, okay? Uh, whether they be, you know, as you get older, you know, your body just doesn't function the way it does, and so absolutely, you have to retire, things like that, absolutely. Uh, there's disabilities and, and accidents, and I can't even name every category, so don't be hurt if I didn't include you in the category, okay? Uh, but there's lots of different reasons in this broken world why people can't work. Paul is not talking to the, about those people who can't work. Uh, if we're going to talk about people who can't work, that's where we go to the parts of the Bible that tell us to take care of the orphan and the widow and the poor. Absolutely, we are to overflow with compassion to help people, to help the needy, to help the poor. This is not about becoming less compassionate, okay? But at the same time, many churches today hammer on that, hammer on that, hammer on that, and we completely ignore this verse where Paul says, and actually there's more than this, we'll get to that in just a moment, but if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Now, again, to our ears in 2017, this sounds really harsh. But again, this is the inspired word of God. So what is Paul talking about there, let him not eat? Okay? Is he saying if we find someone in the church who's not willing to work, we lock them up in a cage and starve them? Is that what he's saying? No. Okay? So we all intuitively know let him not eat doesn't mean grab him, hold him down, lock him up, and starve him. Okay? So what does it mean? Okay? Here's what it means. Paul is not saying that we starve people or lock them away, anything like that. What he's saying is this, okay? How God has created the universe and the created order, how God provides for us, this is God's plan for provision, is for us to work. So when you pray for, for bread, when you pray for food, God doesn't just drop a loaf of bread magically on your table. What he provides is, he says, my plan for human beings as image bearers of, of God, my plan for you guys is to work. And when I provide work for you, that's how I provide bread for you. It's through the work. Does that make sense? So God, when you pray, Lord, provide for me. I need a, a payment in seven. Yes, God miraculously provides funds and does various things. But if you refuse to work, God won't give you anything. Because he says, actually, I provide work for you. I provide the ability to work. And through that, I provide for you. So what Paul is saying here actually isn't harsh. It has nothing to do with the church keeping people from eating. What it means is, Paul is saying is, don't let someone who refuses to work be a burden on the church. You don't have to feel guilty about having to support that person because actually it's their choice not to eat when they choose not to work because I've, I've, I have chosen to provide for them through their work. Does that make sense? So it's actually, it's actually not harsh. It just means that actually God views work as a very important thing, and it's his plan for how he wants to provide for us. And so we have to now, again, we have to hold these things constantly in tension, because the moment I preach a truth like this, I know that some Christians will go to this place of judging, and it's like you want to, some people just want to stereotype every poor person as they're a poor person, they must not uh, want to work. That is absolutely a terrible uh, stereotype, and we will never become uh, judgmental people like that. Jesus says we're not supposed to judge like that, right? So on one hand, we've got to walk in this tension. We have to have tremendous compassion. We must overflow with compassion for the poor and the needy and the orphans and the widows. Absolutely. But at the same time, we have to hold in tension this, in tension this very real truth that actually to be an image bearer of God means we need to be workers. And it's not on us to feel guilty to take care of people who refuse to work. And this is one of the things I've really, we've really appreciated about Alex Mitala there in Uganda. Those of you who have been in Southland for a number of years, you know, you know we do tons and tons of work. And we've sent hundreds of thousands of dollars, probably in the, over a million already, but hundreds of thousands of dollars at the very least of uh, stuff over to Uganda. And we started a farm there and all that sort of stuff. But one of the things, I remember conversations with Alex way back at the beginning when we started our, our partnership with him, is, uh, is, he, is he made a comment to us and he said, you know, a lot of Western charities and charitable organizations and churches, he said, they just want to keep giving handouts to us Africans. They just want to keep giving handouts and handouts and handouts so that we feel good about ourselves, but, we, but they never want to help us Africans stand on our own two feet. And he said, we don't want that. See, as image bearers of God, there's a dignity that comes from being able to work. 
And so we actually cripple people. We actually rob them of dignity when we just hand out, hand out, hand out, hand out, hand out, and never help them stand on their own two feet. And that's why ever since the very beginning there, you, uh, uh, when we, in our partnership there with Tupandani, is uh, we have for a number of years given thousands of dollars every month to feed the orphans there at that orphanage. But at the same time that we've been doing that, feeding you know, 2,000 plus kids every single day from this church, we're doing that right now. But the whole time, we've also been sending over tractors, combines, that sort of thing, and now, and teams of farmers to, to, to disciple them. That's been the goal the whole time along, and now they are cultivating and planting and harvesting their own crops. It's absolutely incredible. There's, it's, it's almost unprecedented in that whole area of, of, of Africa, and now within the last couple of months, they've, they've brought in one of their biggest harvests yet, and they're well on the road to actually being completely self-sustaining as an orphanage where we wouldn't need to send money to feed the kids every month. Is that not incredible? But see, there's a dignity to that, too, because that's what we were made to do. And we cripple people when we just make them absolutely dependent on handouts, and they never actually have to stand on their own two feet. Now, parents, we also, we have to teach this to our kids. We have to teach this to our kids. I got four little kids right now. This is one of my prayer requests, and and it can be a challenge. But if we think we're going to just, you know, if you think you're going to raise good kids just by bringing them to church every week, and then and to up till they're 18, the only responsibility they ever have at home is, I'm just going to play video games, and I'm just going to have fun on social media, and then we send them out into the world. I'll tell you this right now, parents. If we send our kids out into the world with no work ethic, we're sending them out crippled. We're sending them out crippled, and spiritually too. See, you can't divide up work and worship. If God's a worker... And work is part of what we're going to do in heaven. Work is a spiritual thing. Having your devotions every day is a spiritual thing. Absolutely. And, but out of our devotions, we should be fueled to go to work and to work for God. Work is a spiritual thing. And if we send out lazy kids into the world, they're crippled, not just in terms of what they're going to be able to accomplish in life, but we're actually crippling them uh, spiritually. And that's one of the things uh, my parents were always very big on. I mean, Dad always thinks, you know, basically two things as parents. He says, you've got to raise your kids to love God and raise your kids to have a good work ethic. And if they have those two things, they're going to go out and they're going to do something for God. And so we were just raised with that. I remember I would have been grade four or five, somewhere in there, somewhere around 10 years old. And uh, I wanted, to buy, I wanted a, a, a new bike, a mountain bike. And, uh, and so I went to my parents and wanted a, a new bike. And Dad said, well, uh, you know, you can, you can get a job. And, uh, and so he, he helped me, and we got a, I got a newspaper route. So we were in southern Ontario there, so I was delivering the, the London Free Press every day. And I would get up early, had to be done by 7 a.m., and I worked and saved up all my money and, and bought myself my first bike, all with my own money. Oh, wow, there's a feeling that comes with that. It's amazing. It took me a while. It was a lot of hard work. Um, and then, of course, Dad, because we had just a little, a little uh, church plant there in Woodstock. We weren't making hardly any money. Then he started really thinking. He saw me really starting to prosper. So he started adding uh, paper routes. And uh, we started doing more and more paper routes. He started doing them with me. Eventually, we had all six of us, our whole family, four kids and the, and the parents. We were doing, uh, I think around in the end, we were doing up to 400 papers, the London Free Press, every single morning. Okay? And so we would have to get up because they had to be delivered by 7 a.m. We had to get up Monday through Saturday. This is all my middle school years until we moved here to Manitoba, which was in grade 9. But all through grade, from grade 6 through 8, uh, we were up every morning, Monday through Saturday, all of us kids, uh, a few minutes before 5 a.m., so we'd get our 400 papers done uh, before 7. Now, I remember some of my teachers at, at my middle school, when they found out how early we were getting up, they were just horrified, like, oh, it was the best thing for us. You know, Sundays we got to sleep in until 7. Do you know how good sleeping in until 7 feels when you're getting up at 5 every, every morning? It's amazing, Right? And uh, I remember then we moved here to Manitoba. First thing, it was summer. And again, this is just how we were taught. So it's summer now. What are you going to do? Well, you get a job. So I got a job. Uh, Anders Taves, he's playing the drums this weekend. And he's my buddy. So uh, we lived in Cleefeld when we first moved here. And of course, in Cleefeld, land flowing with milk and honey. They got all the, the bee farms everywhere, right? So I got a job with Anders at his uh, dad, uh, Walter Taves' bee farm. And uh, that's hard work. If you ever worked on a bee farm, that's hard work. I remember showing up my first day, and of course, Anders being Anders, fails to mention to me that I should be wearing rubber boots. And so uh, I'm just wearing runners, and of course, my bee suit, because I'm so tall and skinny, is about this much too short. <laughs> and, uh, and he failed to mention to me that I would need rubber boots. And so I, I walk in, and I see everybody else has rubber boots, and then they have their bee suits nicely sealed around their boots. And I've got like six to eight inches of, of bare ankle showing. And I, I noticed that right away. I said... Like, what's with, what's with the boots? Well, Andrew says, you won't need that, he says. 
And I, I felt a little ner nervous. It seems to me like you need it. All the rest of everybody here seems to, seems to need it. No, it won't, you won't, you'll be fine. They won't, they won't sting you. And, and he was right for a couple of hours. And uh, we were pulling the roofs off these, the roofs off these bees. So you, you pull the roof off and you put uh, syrup into the slats to feed them there in spring. And uh, sure enough, I got through the first couple hours, then we're going to stop for lunch. We had one more hive to do, and so I went to that, and any of you who's ever worked on a bee farm, you know that, that uh, every hive has its own personality, ranging from angry to very angry, okay? <laughs> uh, there's no happy on that scale. And uh, this one was on the very angry, and you can just feel it immediately. You take the, the roof off, and they, they attack you in a new way. You can feel it. There's an energy there. And it turns out also that that bees give off a pheromone. Once they find the weakness and they sting you, they give off this like hormone into the air and it's like bullseye. And so on this last hive before lunch, one bee found my exposed ankles and suddenly the whole hive was there and I was running for dear life. <laughs> um, but you know, that's good. I, I actually, in the afternoon, I stuffed, he, had a, he has a brother who I think is four years younger than, than us and I actually stuffed my feet into his boots for the afternoon. That uh, was painful. But, but it's, you know what, work is good for us. I don't really know why I shared that story just now. But uh, other than to say work is good for us, right? And we need to teach our kids uh, to work. This is a spiritual, spiritual thing. And just in case you think I'm exaggerating Paul's teaching, because you might be looking here and saying, okay, well, one verse in the whole New Testament. You're just kind of highlighting one little verse, and really that's a very minor, you know, throwaway point in the New Testament. Let me, I just want to show you the context of this verse. This is not just one little verse. This is part of a whole passage where Paul is talking about work, okay? And so we'll start at the beginning of the passage in verse 6. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. Now those are strong words. And Paul is saying here things here that I wouldn't even dare to say. I, all I can do is just read them, okay? So this is actually serious. Laziness, what Paul is saying, laziness is actually a spiritual sickness. You can't be lazy and on fire for Jesus at the same time. Did you know that? See, you might think, well, as long as I'm doing my devos. Yes, do your devos. That's a part of walking with Jesus. But actually, part of walking with Jesus is working, okay? And not, and by the way, just a quick time out, not just in a job, there are many different ways to work, right? A mom who's home with her kids is working, okay? That's a, that's a hard work. I know it, okay? Um, there's different ways you can work than just being at a job. But my point is, a lazy person, that's a spiritual sickness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. Next verse, verse 7. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. And now Paul is going to turn it on himself. He's going to say, we are your example because we were not idle when we were with you. Paul says, Part of my authority to be an apostle is not just that I pray a lot, but it's that I work very hard. That's actually part of Paul's authority. comes from his working, not just his devotional life. Verse 8, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. Uh, you know, part of what you're going to see throughout the New Testament, I'll show you some other passages in just a moment. It's a very big deal to Paul that as Christians, we not be burdens to other people. If we're able to work, now, some of you are not able to work and gladly receive the generosity of the church and, and people who love you, absolutely. And we're to gladly give it, with, not begrudgingly or judgingly, absolutely. But for those who are able to work, it's a very big deal to Paul that we not be a burden to others, that we actually work to meet our own needs and so we can give to others. Very important to him. And so he talks about this often in his letters. But with toil and labor, we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. And many people, when we think of imitating Paul, we think of imitating, you know, his sacrifice and his prayers and his evangelism, all things we should imitate. But I want you to notice here that he says, imitate my work ethic too. Work ethic is part of the Christian life. It's part of being spiritual. It's part of following Jesus. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. That's the one we just read. And then we go to the next two verses. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now, such persons, look at this, we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly, and to earn their own living, okay? So Paul, this is actually a command from Paul. This is part of the Christian life, right? To do our work quietly and to earn our own living, 
okay? And just in case, again, that you think this is a minor teacher, teaching in Paul's writings, let me take you quickly through three passages, and then we'll move to, a, to my next point. But if we go to the first, his first letter to the Thessalonians, um, not this is the one I just read to you, it's from the second one. If we go to the first letter, we see Paul saying this in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 9. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day. This is a common theme in Paul's letters, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. How about 1 Corinthians chapter 4? In his letter to the Corinthian Christians, he says this, To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we blessed. When persecuted, we endure. You say, now what kind of work did he do? Now, much of the time, he was just working hard in ministry. But sometimes he also supplemented working hard in ministry with, with working hard with his own hands. And we find out what his trade was in Acts chapter 18, uh, verses 1 to 3. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And this is the example Paul set for us, to work and to work hard. Now, I know one of the objections or one of the fears that people have, often young people, but in, uh, I was getting responses already last night after the services, even many uh, older people or middle-aged people and, and all kinds of ages People worry about this. One of the things that paralyzes us when it comes to work is, what is my calling? Many people are paralyzed by that. What is my calling? And so people are paralyzed. They, they worry, like, what job should I take? Do I take the one at Timmy's? Do I take the one at McDonald's? And this, what if I get it wrong, right? What if I miss my calling? Uh, another one that's tied in with that is this idea. There's like, um, many Christians are worried about, they're constantly looking for, where's the job where I get to use my talents for God, my talents and abilities. And they're, they're looking for that job that's going to give them fulfillment. They're looking for that job where they're going to maximize the gifts God has given them. So let me just take a moment here and tell you something that for some of you might shock you, okay? This book says a lot about work. It says a lot. And I, I'm, I've shown you a few passages now. I'll show you a few more. But I haven't even touched, and I won't touch today, on any passages from Ecclesiastes or Proverbs, and those two books talk also a lot, a lot about work. Okay? So the Bible says a lot about work and working hard, but do you know what it never talks about? Not even once? In fact, I challenge you this week, if you think I'm wrong, and it really bugs you, your, your homework this week, your weekly challenge, is to read the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Okay? <laughs> Go through the entire book, from front to back, and you find me one verse where it says in here that it's important that you find your calling. Or find one verse in here that says it's important to find fulfillment at work that you maximize your talents and abilities and gifts. Actually, that's not teaching in Scripture, okay? It's not bad to want that, but you know the vast majority of Christians who have lived throughout history or who are living today in, world, in third world countries and stuff, they will never find a job that maximizes their talents or abilities. You say, what a waste. Actually, you weren't made for this lifetime. You were made for the next one. Your talents and abilities, even if you never get to use them in this lifetime, they were made for eternity. You're going to serve God and do work and do amazing things and bear fruit in eternity. This little life here is just a test. So actually, this book doesn't teach us to put a priority on finding our calling. In fact, so many Christians are afraid of finding their calling. If God is God... How on earth could you ever miss your calling? If God is God, if he's sovereign over the whole universe, how is it possible? Can you imagine God? And you're praying to him, Lord, is it, is it Timmy? Is it co-op? What is it? And you're doing listening prayer. And then you take the wrong, you take co-op, and he's like, oh, you missed your calling. If God is God, is it possible you could miss your calling like that? Let me encourage you. I want to encourage you with something very much here. And I'm going to show you some examples on the screen in just a moment. You cannot miss your calling. If you just put your head down, here's what the Bible calls us to, work hard. Just work hard at something. If you work hard at something, there's, and you just try to be faithful to God the best you know how, he will make sure that your calling finds you. Okay? Let's look at just some Bible characters, okay? Paul was a tent maker, okay? Jesus was a carpenter. Now, that's profound because he's God. He was a carpenter? Peter was a fisherman. Moses was a shepherd. David was also a shepherd. 
Joseph was a jailbird. He was in jail when his calling found him, right? Like, okay, now I want you to think about these guys. And, oh, by the way, I had a complaint last night. Could you put a woman up there? Dorcas, okay? I forgot about that. And Dorcas was a seamstress. And what a great name that is too, isn't it? But anyway, um, and it is. No offense to any of those who might call that. It is a wonderful name. But uh, anyway, but I want you to think about, these, these, think about these, these trades, okay? David's a shepherd. Now, how did David go from being a shepherd to being a king? Well, he was very worried about finding his calling, wasn't he? He was praying, lots of listening prayer, and he was doing surveys. He was going door to door, getting, you know, drumming up business and trying to become a king. That's how he became, no. All David was was a shepherd. Did you know that a shepherd was considered a very lowly job in those days? That's why they had David doing it, not any of his older brothers. He was doing a lowly job with no hope of advancement. He wasn't dreaming about being a king. He wasn't planning to become a king. All he did was show up every day and work hard. He was just faithful to take care of his sheep every single day. And one day out of the blue, Samuel the prophet shows up and says, you're going to be king. He, all you do is work hard at something and try to be faithful to God as best you know how. And, and God will make sure if God is God, you can't miss your calling. Boom, you're going to be king. How about Moses? Again, shepherd. Lowly, lowly job. In fact, he's coming out of Egypt. The Egyptians despise shepherds. 40 years, he's a shepherd in the desert, okay? Absolutely no prospects for career advancement. You're going to be a shepherd till the day you die. Did he miss his calling? Absolutely not. God gets a hold of him at a burning bush in the middle of the desert. Peter's a fisherman. Jesus finds his boat. There's no accidents with God. Jesus gets into his boat, preaches a sermon from his boat, and at the end of it says, now I want you to come and follow me. Okay? Paul's a tent maker. He's actually persecuting Christians. He's not even trying to follow Jesus. He's trying to hurt Jesus. And on the road to Damascus, Jesus comes and confronts him and blinds him and says, and now this is what you're going to do. Okay? You want to be encouraged? Think about this. Jonah was trying to run away from his calling, wasn't he? And Jesus tracked him down with a shark, gobbled him up, okay? Swam him across the Mediterranean and puked him up in Nineveh and said, now get on with it right? You can't. If God is God, how do you miss your calling if God is God? It's not up to you to find it. So the Bible doesn't tell us to do all kinds of worrying about our calling. This is what the Bible tells us to do. Find something and work hard at it. So you say, how do we approach our work and our jobs every day? Let me show you how you do that. Colossians chapter 3, I told you, and I'm not even touching all the passages. Paul talks a lot about work. Here's what he says in Colossians 3. This is how we approach our jobs. Whatever you do, it's not actually that important. Like God's not, it doesn't rise or fall if you make the right, right or wrong decision. Just do your best. Find something and work at it. Obviously, God cares about all the details of our lives, but ultimately, you don't miss his calling by taking the wrong job by accident. Whatever you do, God, God's not so much concerned with what you do. He's concerned with how you do it. Look, whatever you do, garbage collector, you know, lifeguard, teacher, doctor, whatever, whatever you do, Work heartily. This is a sign of a Christian. This is the fruit of the Spirit. Part of the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and those things. Another fruit of the Spirit is that you work heartily. What a testimony for Jesus. Can you imagine if, if us Southlanders in this, in this community, in this area, were known that everybody wants to hire a Southlander because they work heartily. Like they're just crazy happy every morning when they show up to work. It's weird. And then they give their best, 110% all the time. That's actually an incredible ministry. Amen. And when you do that, whatever you do, work heartily. Now look at what he says next. Okay? As for the Lord and not for men. How many of you knew that you don't have to work at church to work for God? You can work anywhere and work for God if you work heartily at what you're doing. You can work, let me say that again, you can work anywhere. And by the way, I'm going to include moms in that. You can be a stay-at-home mom and be working for the Lord. Amen. You can be a car salesman. Yeah, sure, if you're going to clap, let's just get over with and let's... It's true though, right? It's true. You can work for God anywhere. Knowing that from the Lord, look at this, he's even going to reward you. It's not just for ministry or being at church, but... Knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Do you know if you work heartily at a job, whatever job that is, there's actually reward in heaven for that. You are serving the Lord Christ. So whatever you do, do it heartily. Do it with joy. Do it with gratitude. 
do it with your best effort, do it with integrity, you're actually serving God and there's a reward for you in heaven for that kind of work. Work is worship, work is spiritual. Now I want to finish this message by talking about one last motivating factor. So work is worship, that's a motivating factor. Work is because we're in the image of God, that's a motivating factor. But I want to talk about one last motivating factor that Paul talks about why we should be motivated to work. And it's one that maybe we don't think about enough. But I hope that the Spirit's going to click for some of us. It's a whole new paradigm, a whole new way of looking at work and why we work. Ephesians 4, verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal. So he's writing to the, to the church in Ephesus, and people are getting saved. So even thieves are getting saved. So he's got, he has to give practical advice to these new believers. If you're a thief and you just got saved, here's a little bit of advice as a Christian. Stop, stop you know, thieving. Stop stealing. So let the thief no longer steal. Now here's discipleship. How many discipleship materials have work as a part of discipleship? But this is Paul's discipleship of these new believers. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor. Part of you just gave your life to Christ is now we have to teach you that actually working hard and working heartily is actually part of pleasing God. Let the thief no longer steal, but let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. It's important to God. It's important to Paul. Let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. Now here's the why. Why? Why, 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 why? So that, okay, so that, here's the why coming, he may have something to share with anyone in need. One of the motivating factors, so we, this is not the only motivating factor. Some of the motivating factors is because we want to worship God, so we want to grow in him, all sort of stuff. But one of the motivating factors, why we should want to work, that should motivate us to work, is we work hard so that we are not a burden to others. We're not a burden to the church. We're not a burden to the system. As Christians, we don't want to be a burden, okay? Unless you can't work. Of course, if you can't work, that's a different thing. Gladly receive the generosity of the church, okay? But for those of us who are able to work, we want to work hard so that we are not a burden to others and so that we can work hard and be successful so we have a surplus to give to those in need. We actually work so that we can be givers, the goal of life is not just to get through life and enjoy it as much as we can. The goal of life is to be productive so that we can be generous, so that we can be givers. The goal is to be a giver. But I can't become a giver unless I'm a worker. I need to be productive. I need to, I need to make money so that I can take care of myself and not be a burden, so that I can give to others and be generous. And of course, this is massively about the poor, and we believe in that here at this church, the amount of food we give away, and, and even financial assistance and different things that we do for poor people in this area. We do lots of it. We believe in it. But actually, this is about more even than just giving to the poor. Matthew chapter 28, Jesus gives us, the church, our mission statement. This is supposed to be the driving and consuming passion of our lives, even though many Christians actually feel disconnected from it. But this is Jesus left to go to heaven, and he left us with a mission. And many Christians actually just ignore this and we just kind of go about our busy lives and just do whatever. But actually, Jesus gave us a mission. This is why we're here. He went to heaven and said, here's a job for you to do. When you finish it, I'm coming back. And here's the job. And Jesus came to them and, said, and, and, came and said to them, just, just before he goes back to heaven, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Well, that's a lot of authority, okay? And now coming out of that authority, he's going to give the church her mission. And that's us. He's going to give Christians our mission. Go therefore, because I've been given this authority, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. This is our mission. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is actually the thing that's supposed to drive the church, but not just the church corporately. This is the thing that's supposed to drive us as individuals. And by the way, you don't have to go overseas to do this. This doesn't mean that it only counts when you're going to other nations from your nation. It always starts at home. First, we make as many disciples as we possibly can at home. As many Steinbackers and Manitobans and Blumenorders and Grunthalers and Mitchellites and everybody else, right? Even the, even the French ones. We love you guys too. The St. Anites and the Labrokerites. We want to make as many disciples as we can here at home. But then, but then we also want to spread it. As many Manitobans, as many Canadians, as many people in the world, this is our mission. This is Jesus left. He said, here's your job, and when you finish it, I'm going to come back. Okay? Now, here's the thing. This great commission has to hit our pocketbooks. 
It has to hit our bank accounts. This great commission is already costing the church around the world a lot of money, but to complete it, it will cost a lot of money. It actually costs a lot of money to run a local church, to disciple people in an area. It costs a lot of money to spread churches, to plant churches, to evangelize. It costs a lot of money, and actually Jesus wants it to cost a lot of money because he knows that if he gets our money, he gets our hearts. That's why he preached a sermon that said, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will also be. So my question is, is our treasure in the Great Commission, is it in the local church to do the Great Commission? See, we're in a, we're in a unique, unique position here at Southland. I mean, when we think of cost, when we think of what, uh, you know, God is doing here through church renewal, like uh, I just got an update the other day, and I'm just forgetting the numbers. I'm, I'm close to the numbers. I'm not sure what the exact specifics are, but uh, Pastor A. Dad was just saying to me, uh, they've, he's spoken now, as of today, he's speaking again in Acapulco in a couple of churches, but uh, he's spoken uh, 17 or 18 times in the last two weeks in eight or nine different cities. And the hunger there for church renewal is intense. The, the hung, in South America, they're not just Mexico, but Panama and those different countries down there. The hunger for church renewal is intense. They are desperate for training, those pastors. They are desperate for mentoring. They, want, they are desperate to know how to help their churches confess sin and deal with their junk. They are desperate to, to, to learn how do we hear God's voice and follow his leading. They are desperate to learn how do we get our churches praying. They're so hungry that actually now we're praying. We think we might be at 300 churches in weekly mentoring. Um, by next year. That is just an insane number. And to actually mentor that many churches, it's a huge cost in staff time, in organization, in, in equipment, in everything. It's a, it's a huge, huge cost. We're blessed to be able to do it. But you'll see up on the, on the wall out there, one of our prayer requests is that we want to be completely out of debt everything, everything we own, including the retreat and training center, which we just finished now this weekend. We want to be completely out of date, out of debt uh, out of date. <laughs> we don't want to be out of date that quickly, but we want to be completely out of debt by the end of next year. That's actually what we're praying about because can you imagine what we could do in church renewal and a great commission if we had no more building payments to make, if we could just say, Lord, we're putting our whole shoulder in. There's no more debt. There's no more. We're just going to throw our shoulder into this thing. We're going to go for it. I had the blessing of, of in December, I got to go out for lunch uh, with an organization here in Canada. Their whole mission their only mission, and they're very, very good at it, they're very effective, is to go to the last unreached people groups in the world. The last people groups in the world where they don't have a, any kind of Bible witness in their language, where they don't have a church. Uh, and, uh, and there's nobody saved. They're absolutely, utterly uh, unreached. And, uh, and they, their goal is to reach 250 of these un, absolutely unreached people groups in the next just over 20 years. And they would absolutely love to partner with a church like ours to make some of this happen. And so as I'm thinking about this, I just think, what would happen if we had a whole new mentality about work? Because actually, to carry that all out is going to cost a lot of money. But to be able to give that kind of money is going to take a lot of work because money doesn't grow on trees, does it? And what if we had got a brand new mentality across the Christians in all of North America. There's so much money here in North America. What if as Christians we just got, and what if you're in Steinway? What if you're at Southland? We got a whole new mentality about work. Actually, I want to work. I, my goal isn't, many Christians today have this goal, I want to retire as soon as I can. That's, first of all, it's not a sin to retire. I said it before. That's part of just aging in this broken world. There just comes a point we can't work any longer. So retirement is a fine thing. But actually, this idea that we have a goal to retire as soon as we can, that's not in here. That I want to make as much money as I can so I can retire as soon as I can, so that I can spend the last couple of decades of my life just relaxing and enjoying myself. Are you hoping to get to heaven's gates rested already? Isn't that what heaven is for? Aren't we going to get rest? I know we're going to work in heaven, but we're going to get rested. I want to get to heaven spent. That's what we see in here. That's what we see. That's the example of the apostles. I want to give everything I have here and get to heaven's gate exhausted. I'm done. I spent every last penny on you, Jesus. I spent every last penny I had on the Great Commission. I spent every last ounce of energy I had. I want to get to heaven's gates exhausted and tuckered out. That's the goal of the Christian. 
Our goal should be to work as long as we can, to make as much money as we can, so we can give as much money as we can, to see as much of the Great Commission completed in our generation as we can, and then go to heaven worn out and spent, and Jesus can fill it up. And some of you here today actually have a gift for making money. You do, you have a gift. Just like there's a gift of teaching in a church, and there's a gift of leadership, and there's a gift of music, there's also some of you have a gift of making money. It's actually not a very common gift, but it's an important gift. And why would you take that gift then and say, I'm going to work as hard as I can and then retire and have 25 or 30 years of my life to just travel the world and do stuff? Fine, travel, go on vacations. Those are all wonderful things. Take a break here and there. Take a rest. But actually, if you have that gift, if the Great Commission is the thing driving us, I'll tell you, it's a new mentality. If you have the gift of making money, it's, again, work as long as I can. Not in terms of hours of the day so that we become imbalanced. I'm talking in terms of lifespan. There's a balance to, to life. We don't become workaholics. There's rest, there's family, there's relationships. But I'm going to work as long as I can in terms of my life to make as much money as I can so I can give as much as I can so we can see as much of the Great Commission completed in our lifetime as we possibly can. We are so, we have such an opportunity here at Southland with church renewal and some of these things that God's doing here at this church. Absolutely amazing. But it's going to take a lot of work. And it's going to take a mindset of we want to work so that we can give. Amen? So here's my only uh, weekly challenge for this week is come to the prayer summit on Tuesday. So that's two days from now. Tuesday night, here in the auditorium, 7 to 9 p.m. We're going to pray about the Great Commission. We're going to pray about businesses. We're going to pray about your workplaces. We're going to pray about some of these things in addition to some other things and lots of worship. But we're going to pray about this. And we're going to ask God to really do a work in our lives and give us a whole new mentality about work and the Great Commission. Let's pray, and then we're going to finish with a song of worship. Lord Jesus, we lift you up. You are the king of the universe. You're the creator. You're the Lord of lords. And we don't, we don't want to put all our eggs in the basket of enjoying our lives here on earth. Lord, we want to look forward to enjoying heaven. We want to carry out the mission, the commission, the great commission that you've given us. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would empower us as a church to really put our shoulders to the plow of church renewal and the Great Commission, Jesus. We want to be a church that accomplishes something for you. We want to get to heaven someday, and we want to be able to stand before you with joy and pride to say, we were a part of this thing. We were a part. We did our role. We were, we were in it. We were all in. Jesus, that's the kind of church we want to be. Would you put that passion and desire into our hearts, each of us as individuals and as a church. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.